dear Mrs. Lister, I know you were expecting your two adorable hosts, Melanie B. Wasser and Daniela for England, but I regret to inform you that my faction and I will be holding these two incredibly talented and beautiful women hostage until we receive $5 million by 3 p.m. on Thursday. If you wish to see or hear from Danielle and Melanie again, you must follow these directions without deviation. Do not attempt to pause or stop this broadcast. Do not contact the authorities. Take this money to... ...in unmarked, untraceable bowls in a large Winnie the Pooh bag. I don't care where you get it. Just get it. Any funny business and I will have no choice but to welcome you to Zombie Fishbowl, a podcast about random shit. Hello, and welcome to Zombie Fishbowl, a ridiculous romp through mystery, science, history, archaeology, and all kinds of weird shit in between. I am Melanie, the American hostess, and with me is the stupidly smart Danielle from across the pond. And yes, hello, and again, not stupidly smart, but thanks, I will take the compliment. <laughs> and she says again, because we just got to tell you, this is our second attempt at this episode. <laughs> yeah. We recorded it before, and it did not want to happen. No, there were some issues, so we're trying again. Yes, attempt number two. <laughs> um, and when our records take an hour and a half to two hours, it's a little bit of a fuck moment when you realize you have to re-record it. Yeah, and like so many, so many of the the unique jabs that happen and and conversation that happens fluidly, just suddenly it's just like we have to. We're going to have to figure out new uh, new ways to interpret what we're listening to, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a completely different conversation. Although it did mean that I got to go back and sort of fix some of the things that I didn't think worked the first time around. So, hey, you know, swings and roundabouts. Swings and roundabouts. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it was a second attempt that time. Much better the second time. Yeah, yes. <laughs> so uh, before we get into it, shall we do our updates? Yes, please. Do you want to go first? I go first. So my beautiful, amazing, gorgeous, wonderful sister is actually in the process of setting up a website for us. A lot of it actually involves me having to write stuff. So it may take a little bit longer <laughs> than I was hoping because I, uh, I don't have time. I have to go back to work now, which is great. <laughs> so I I've also time. just started a job, so. Yeah. Woo! So I have a bit less time than I did before, but we'll make it work and we will soon hopefully have a website where you can put in your submissions for uh, topics. You can get the references that Danielle uh, keeps lovely like logs of. I don't have references for anything because I'm I'm a total dink, but I can find them and pull them up. It's not hard. It's my nerd cred. Yeah, yeah. No, because you're just you have a better brain for this than I do. (laughs) (laughs) I use APA format with a little tweak. I don't, I don't expect you to <laughs> <laughs> But suffice to say that the website should be awesome and have just a bunch of little extra content that I think could really, really make it the community more fun. All like 13 of us. It'll be great. It's be oh, awesome. yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Am I meant to be contributing to this document as well? Um, You are more than welcome to. Yes, please do. Help. Help me. Okay, Help I'll me. pop some things in there. <laughs> okay. Hopefully. At some point. We'll see. I've just realized when I was um, loading all this stuff up that I've got to find time to edit this and put it up before the next episode. So, you know. Although, actually, it just let's just do it so it's a week out. Yeah. It's, yeah. 
You'll get the episodes when you get them, okay? Calm down. I mean, nobody's emailed or messaged us and gone, why hasn't the episode dropped? Yeah, I haven't gotten any hate mail yet, so, you know, no. just take it, take it as it comes, my loves. And you have an update for us as well, don't you? I do. So speaking, like, it's kind of been fitting with your update, which is that the podcast, Zombie Fishbowl, um, is turning one on the 29th of June. So we launched almost a year ago. Um, uh, that makes this podcast a cancer, by the way. <laughs> Super emotional. Crabby is what I was going to say. Um, and uh, yeah, so we should do something special for the one year anniversary or one first birthday, whatever you want to call it. But yeah, I think we should try to do something. Maybe. Absolutely. I think you had a, a great idea of dropping our unaired first episode, which was a little cringy, but uh, I think that would be fun. Yeah, it is a bit cringy, and I don't think I ever edited it, so maybe it could just literally be unedited as well. So oh, loads shit. of us, loads of us going. Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we were so scared, you guys. This is really intimidating. It's really nerve-wracking, even if it is your friend, because suddenly there's like you're inviting someone else into the room, even though they're not here right now. You're aware of them. But yeah, we got better. Oh, and the first topic was really fun. It was ho- um, uh, child ghosts, so like ch- the ghosts of children. So Melanie did black-eyed children, and I don't remember what I did. I think I also did a yokai. You did do a yokai. Yeah. That's where the yokai tradition was born. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Indeed it was. So maybe we'll release the unedited first pilot episode of Zombie Fishbowl, where three people will listen to it. <laughs> And they'll be like, oh, they've grown so much. <laughs> or we could sell stickers. Or, or both. Yeah. <laughs> or both. Or not even sell, give away some stickers. So, yeah. you know, I'm happy to go out on a limb here and say, I will send you a free sticker if you contact us and, and ask for one. If we've got stickers. I've been if, thinking if we about end up doing stickers that. for a while. Yeah. And then you could just go stick it to a lamppost or something, which would be cool. Yeah, stick them on everything. Subversive <laughs> advertising. Yes. <laughs> so, um, before we get into this, I guess we'll we'll dive into our thing. Yes. 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 There's a big thing. <sighs> yeah. There's a there's a pretty pretty uh intense thing going on, and so we'll start with the intense one, and we'll get into the nicer one. <laughs> yeah. Um, obviously, you know, we have the, the protests and the riots and, and the, just a lot of, of anger at the system going on right now. Um, and we just, you know, we don't want to get too heavy into it because we, we do try to keep politics out of this as best we can, but black lives, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not, we're not, we're not great at that because we're very opinionated people, but black lives fucking matter. And, um, you know, I stand with you and we stand with you. Come yep. on. We're, we're white women. We, we don't, we already have so much going for us and to try and talk on anyone's behalf just feels shallow and I don't want to do that. So just, 
I'm just here to listen and and help in any way that I can. And please, you guys, when you're out there doing your thing, be safe. Please. Yeah. The last thing you need is more violence. Yeah, that was my thing. Just watch out for yourself. Be safe. I stand with you as well. I, you know, believe Black Lives Matter. And um, to our listeners that are um, protesting, I'm proud of you and we're proud of you and our non-activity in that area of actual physically protesting is not out of a lack of support it is about priorities of our life so we're allies in a different way so we've i you know it is about you and your voice and you get to go and 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 say those things and i will be a better ally for you in the future i'm learning a lot i am learning a lot about what it means to be anti-racist rather than um not racist so there's a big subtle yeah, difference yeah, yeah. yeah sorry absolutely. a big subtle difference that's obviously more but there is a difference between being not racist and being an anti-racist so i'm learning and i'm listening to you and um yeah i'm gonna put those lessons into my my default settings hopefully in my brain um so that if i see injustice i step forward instead of meek yeah. meekly cower in the corner like it's not my problem yeah hopefully i'll let, we'll see how things go i'm and I'm, op- I'm also hoping that it is the beginning of a revolution i've got to be too. honest with you um so if you guys are starting a revolution right now oh thank you because uh it's long overdue <laughs> It's so overdue. Oh my God. Oh yeah. geez. And and to any other, you know, white allies there who don't know how to reach out and be allies, um, who don't want to just sit back but also don't want to come across as insincere or or put put people of color on the spot on trying to make them teach you how to be an ally, that's not their job. So I have a couple articles that are really, really great, really well written. I can post those if you don't want to get them if I don't want to put them eh, if if you don't think I should put them on our page, I'll put them on my uh, my other personal pages at Mad Madam Melzi. There's Twitter and on Facebook. Follow me there. I'll have some some good resources for you there because this this can't keep happening. Mm. <sighs> yeah. yeah, I think that's enough for yeah. us. Yeah. On a lighter note, <laughs> um, my thing that I went into. Uh, um in the the previous episode was that i have um been stimulated <laughs> my inspiration has been triggered by um watching a lot of people create art and watching programs on the television about art so i have been using an app on my laptop to create um still lives and um just various paintings there's a few that i've not posted online yet but um yeah so i've actually been been creative rather than sitting around um and doing nothing i just said um like a million times but (laughs) um (laughs) and again it feels really good to be creating things and it does feel like I'm being productive 
But at the exact same time, I feel like I'm still avoiding the things I should be doing, like researching for this podcast, for example, some previous projects and assignments that I had for university, my dissertation, my internship now, you know, instead of working on what I should be doing, I'm making pretty pictures on my app. Um, and on top of this, I've been suffering quite badly lately from insomnia for about two or three weeks. Um, and because I end up staying up late painting on the app, I'm losing even more sleep and I keep come up with, coming up with like concepts and ideas for pieces while I'm in bed. Yeah. And so I have to get up and get my phone out and type in a note before I forget what it is. And then I get distracted by everything that's going on in the world on my phone. And before I know it, I've been on my phone for 45 minutes and I'm wide awake again. So it's kind of a double-edged sword, isn't it? Where you've got like this really positive feeling towards your you're being creative and you're feeding that sort of side of your, you know, it's good for your well-being and your um, self-soothing through this process. But then there's that little voice in the back of your head that constantly nags you going, well, don't you remember that there's laundry to be done? And don't you forget that you've got that thing that you said that you would do? And don't forget that, you know, and it's always there and you feel really bad. And even when you sat making something that you're quite proud of, you still feel that guilt and shame and yeah. like, you know. But I, I mean, when it comes to like mental health, like I, I said before, it's it's so important when when you're depressed or when you're when you're in a a hard place with your own brain and you finally find something that feels like joy or or closer to joy or like an emotional purge than you may have had before it's so important to tap into that so i encourage the hell out of you with your art i i've seen your pieces i can't wait to see more because they're really really good her colors are just stunning and and they're just it's it's so important for you but yeah again keeping that balance of of what needs to be done and what needs to be done for you um is i mean a lot of it is, is blocking your time you know what i mean like you know between this hour and and this hour i can do my art and before the, anything before that i have to like resist that urge yeah and know that my time for art is coming um and, and I have to stop at this point or else I'll just keep going and and it just kind of throws the curve of what you might be trying to maintain with a, a sort of schedule. Yeah, I can border on too obsessive. Um, I know. So yeah, I do have to I have to be very strict with myself since coming up with this thing to talk to you about um when we recorded it the first time round. I have actually made a little bit of progress in terms of being able to delegate particular times, not specifically times like 7 p.m. till 8 p.m., but like particular situations in which it would be acceptable for me to go get my laptop and do some painting. So, for example, I had delegated, delegated, but I had planned some time last night to do very particular things and those fell through. So I replaced those things with the painting instead of doing nothing. Yeah. So... Plans got cancelled, 
one by me and then another by somebody else. So I had a big block of time that I didn't think I was going to have. So instead of just going, oh, right, well, then I'll just do nothing. Then I, I did some painting. Nice. And um, I feel like that's that's good. That's a good way of um, so I don't feel like I uh, lost an opportunity to be active in some way. Yeah. I didn't become complacent to being uh, like, yeah, I, I didn't give up. Yeah. 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 Um and I haven't got any delegated time to do painting set up for myself. I have a meticulous schedule, but I know the circumstances under which would be healthy for me to do so. Got it. Yeah. See, I have on my phone like 14 timers per day so that I don't like miss a chunk of time where I should be doing something else. Because if yeah. I don't set timers for them, then I will just lump off for for hours on end and I can't do that yeah no I know what you mean I have reminders and things like that set for the for the things that have set times and set things that I need to do uh which is why I don't want to plan in painting time as well because I don't want that to feel like oops I'm hiccuping now I don't want the painting to feel like it's a delegate delegated activity to be done this at this time because then I'll stop liking it. Fair enough. So See, for I, me, I'd be all like, I get 20 minutes until I can go do the thing. <laughs> like, yeah. that's, that's where my brain goes. But that should be a spontaneous choice. So today, uh, I have like, I literally have this written down, right? So this was, I had two hours to spare. And then I was like planning what, how much time I would actually have to spare. So I finished working at six. So I had six till nine free time, 8.30 till 9.30. I would, I was going to be prepping, sorry, 8.30 till nine. I was going to be prepping for this re-record. <laughs> so I have, so I actually had six till 8.30 of free time, but I needed to factor in the fact that I needed to cook and eat tea from seven, seven o'clock. <laughs> so really I only have a one and a half hours free what do I want to do with that? <laughs> you know I mean? yeah, yeah. So I, 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 or sometimes it can be a bit overthinky. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. But with that hour and a half, I decided to leave the house. Nice. So I returned a dress to the supermarket that didn't suit me. And I took Turner with me. So we went on a drive to the supermarket that was further away than the one that's really close. And we drove along the promenade there and we drove along the promenade back and we were, and I did a little shop. (laughs) So instead of replacing that with the like art or instead of filling that free time with something like, I was like, right, I'm going to leave the house, which is a good thing as well. So it was a spontaneous choice that I found myself with some time, which is good. By the way, guys, if you're still in isolation or, you know, like shielding and things like that, um, because you know it's very easy to forget that there is also a pandemic going on at the moment yeah um if you're doing that don't forget to leave the house every once in a while just to like you know feel the sun on your face because oh my god i very rarely actually leave the house and Mm -hmm. i do feel better even if i've just gone for a drive yeah yeah oh just just that little bit of like not houseness (laughs) yes Except not, that's it. Just not houseness. Not yeah. houseness. It could be to the, like the gas station or, you know, yeah. just just stepping outside 
uh, to check the mail and just maybe go an extra block and back. It's just like, oh God, just not houseness right now feels so good. I'm going to start using that not houseness. It's not about being outside. Yeah. Because I'm not, I could give, take it or leave the outdoors. Um, <laughs> but it's just the, the not outness, not houseness that mm-hmm. is important. It's very important. Very important. <sighs> Has it inspired a thing in you, Melanie? Well, my, my main thing was, was pretty much the, the, the Black Lives Matter yeah. and the protests. Um, it's, it's nice to see it going on all over the world and not just here. It's crazy to watch it happening here. Uh, I mean, like I said, I'm I'm grateful for it. I hope massive change comes out of it, um, and and all for the better. It's but it is it is very intense, and I do I worry for all sides, you know, because I'm just sort of a worrier at heart, and so my my heart is out there with everybody. Yeah, man, I'm just I am in it. <laughs> there is a side that my heart is less out there for. Oh, true, absolutely true. By a significant um, amount. Yeah. All right. So there may be a little bit here that uh, got edited out. So if there's a little little moment where it goes silent for a second, you're just kind of like, where? Why did that end that way? We kind of went off on a we went off on a thing. We can't so, yes. help it. It just happens. Yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> there's a lot of fucking shit going on right now. There's so much going on. It's so crazy. And at but, the same time, we're stuck at home. It's such a weird, weird place to be in your head. The whole fucking world is really, really weird right now. Really weird. Okay. Which is so why that's we where... need to take our breath. We gotta take our breath. I need a breath real bad. All right. So we are going to breathe out the 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 rage that we are feeling with everyone else. And breathe in the hope and optimism and art and beauty that is life and revolution and change and greatness. Yeah? Yeah. All right. One, two, three. (sighs) You all right? Yeah, I just realized, well, now I've got to do a podcast. I know, right? particularly chipper one either (laughs) nope nope okay so our topic is kidnapping and ransom notes well as is our style let's start with the definition so we get a better idea of what we're talking about and maybe what direction we're heading with it just as a little warning depending on how we go with this i must include a trigger warning this topic is not an easy one and might most likely will involve some talk of horrible things happening to innocent children I'm sorry, but we can't talk ransom notes without bringing some ugly. If this might disturb you um, more than you're comfortable with, may I suggest going back or skipping ahead to some of our more lighthearted topics like mummies, vampires, or witches' curses. We're not here to traumatize you, just to give you stories and information. So let's start, definition-wise, with kidnapping. Now, kidnapping is a tale as old as time. Yeah, cheesy line, but it's one that I sang too many times to ignore. So... The dictionary definition of kidnapping is the act of abducting someone and holding them captive. According to Wikipedia, to lengthen the definition, kidnapping is the unlawful transportation, asportation, or theft and confinement of a person against their will. Thus, it is a composite crime, which kind of means that it's basically just a piece to a list of accompanying crimes, such as battery, assault, murder, human trafficking, etc. Summation, it is stealing a human. 
This can happen for many reasons. Marital disputes, human trafficking, extortions, just being an evil asshole, to name a few. Kidnapping has been a thing for as long as humans have been awful, which is to say a very, very, very long time. Interesting enough, though, trying to find ancient, exciting cases of a kidnapping was proving very difficult. And I think this may be due to the fact that kidnapping was not a phrase until the late 1600s, when it was primarily used to describe the act of stealing children to sell them as laborers and servants to the American colonies. The second half of our topic is ransom notes. And I feel like this is really the piece that we're doing, more so than, than kidnapping as, as a whole. Kidnappings um, just seem to be the gateway drug to ransom notes. So what are ransom notes? A ransom note is a handwritten, typed or collaged letter demanding money in return for the safe return of the person who has been kidnapped. Again, kidnapping people for money has been happening for a long ass time. One of my favorite stories of kidnapping for ransom is Julius Caesar. It's said, though not not verifiable as an actual fact because this was written in like 75 BC, um, that Julius Caesar was captured by pirates near the island of Pharmacusa and held for ransom. Funny story, because it was written that they originally asked for a ransom of 20 talents, which is the equivalent to roughly $600,000. But Julius laughed in their faces and told them to double it. They went hell yeah and demanded 50 talents. He sent his men to collect the ransom, but meanwhile refused to be treated like a captive and was said to have bossed the pirates around, played games with them, read and wrote poetry. Once the ransom was paid, though, Caesar went, well, you got your money. Enjoy it while you can, because I'm going to hunt you down and have you crucified, which he did. Except he slit their throats instead of crucifying them, but, you know, same thing-ish. Long story short on that one, moving on, our topic is not the act of demanding a ransom in itself, but the ever damnifying and exciting piece of evidence that is the ransom note. Mm. Ransom notes are a special kind of ransom because it is a deliberate piece of evidence left in place of the victim with specific instructions and or threats. Some of the most famous cases in modern history revolve around ransom notes. John Benet Ramsey, the Lindbergh baby, just to name a few. We may not know all the details of these two cases, but you sure as hell know those names. And if you don't, you're probably under 30 and you frighten me. <laughs> well, listen so, to some, some true crime podcasts and come back. Every, I'm sure every true, true crime podcast does those two cases at yeah. least once. We aren't doing those cases. No. No. Let's hear what Danielle's got to say. Hmm? Hello, it is I, Danielle. <laughs> First of all, I want to apologize if when you're listening back to this, um, you can hear my cat meowing in the background. Um, she's just out of poop and she just really wanted me to know. Um, <laughs> I did so, it. Mom, I did it. Yep. So Peggy's hanging about, scratching about, meowing. So if there's little meows in the background, don't worry. It was just her proud of her poop again. Got it. Anyway, sorry. So what I decided to do was look at handwriting analysis for my bit. So I wanted to include both graph analysis, which is the forensic examination of handwritten documents to determine and identify the writer or link a document to a scene and graphology which is not which not only boasts its ability to determine the author but also to be able to indicate their psychological state at the time of writing and evaluate personality characteristics 
Mm-hmm. I decided to do this because a lot of the time when ransom note when a ransom note has been used, the note is analysed and we get a lot of these claims in the newspaper with theories based on the skew of the R and the curl of the L and so on. Again, see Jean-René Ramsey um, and the Lindbergh baby, as well as Jean-Paul Getty III. So I wanted to know, what of this stuff was legitimate and what was complete bollocks? But before we start, I just want to point something out that my own personal handwriting changes all the time, not only over long periods of time, but day to day, depending on the pen I'm using, the paper, the angle I'm writing at, the speed I need to write, how engaged I am, my mood. You know, I can look at my notes and each source has a different look and feel to it. So depending on what notes I'm taking for my course sometimes the writing is so neat and lovely that I'll be like oh that looks pretty and sometimes it's so messy I can't even read my own writing and I am sure if not positive that other people are like this too and Melanie's nodding along so she knows her handwriting yeah a scribbled note will look nothing like a handwritten birthday message in a card which will look nothing like a shopping list which will look nothing like lecture notes I even use different kinds of letters and numbers depending on what I'm writing. So sometimes I use the two with the loop in it and sometimes I just have a regular two. It just depends. So I'm a little bit sceptical of the latter concept, which is something that now I'm no longer just a little bit sceptical of. (laughs) My kids always get confused because half of the time my sevens are normal sevens and another half of the time they're with the little line down the middle of it. And they're like, why do you do that? And it's a fancy seven. I like my fancy sevens. So thinking on that, I wanted to know, is handwriting analysis actually legit? Because, you know, you could have two pieces of my own, two samples of my my, my writing and not be able to match them. Um, is it a pseudoscience? Is there any scientific process that um, goes into analyzing um, handwriting? And what even is it? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> So, it kind of depends on what they're claiming to do. If they are claiming to be able to identify the author based on handwriting samples, that's actually pretty legit. And that is what is referred to as forensic document examination or graph analysis. But if they go on to claim that they can determine the personality type, mental state, health issues, so on, that is where we get into silliness. Kind of like dream analysis, it's a subjective and unfounded pseudoscience. But to be fair to dream analysis, dream analysis is at least based in some kind of psychological theory, which we talked Mm -hmm. about in previous episode. It has solid foundations and roots and then goes crazy. Whereas, (laughs) as I will point out, graphology does not. Let's learn first about legitimate handwriting analysis, graph analysis. There are a number of different examination types which are done by experts, such as for handwriting, but also includes the examination and analysis of typewriters, photocopiers, stamps, printing processes, ink, paper, pencils, alterations, additions, indentation, sequence determination, and actual physical matching. That is, for instance, when you're looking at a pad of paper and detect the indentation of the written words from the page above etched into the pages below, and you can literally match that pad of paper to a note. Mm -hmm. 
The concept or principle of identification as it is applied in forensic science is still open for discussion and debate, but the customary approach taken by a practitioner is basically this quote. When any two items possess a combination of independent discriminating elements or characteristics that are similar and or correspond to their relationship to one another, of such number and significance as to preclude the possibility of their occurrence by pure coincidence, and there are no inexplicable disparities, it may be concluded that they are the same in nature or are related to a common source. So that the pool of evidence has to be consistent, consistent enough, right? Yes. Yeah. It can't be based on just the two R's look the same. Yeah, it has to be really, really consistent. But I think at the same time, they're recognizing that it's not always going to be consistent. It just has to go past a certain point where it's like, this can't be a coincidence anymore. Yeah. But it needs to be enough to pass that threshold before they'll even sort of make the match. The evaluation of any characteristics, though, is pretty, pretty subjective, but they're working on it. So there are always studies going on on how they can make it better. And that said, even though evaluation is subjective, that does not mean the results of properly conducted comparisons will be unreliable or un or inaccurate. In fact, testing has shown that professional document examiners outperform laypeople when comparing handwriting or signatures to assess authorship. So they already are kicking people's asses at it. However, this type of subjective analysis depends greatly upon the competency of the individual examiner. So they follow certain guidelines. One, an examiner should follow appropriate case examination protocols carefully and evaluate all possible, all possible prepositions. Two, an examiner should be properly trained and their training should include adequate testing of their abilities. Three, the formal case examination procedure should incorporate some form of secondary review, ideally independent in nature. And four, every examiner should make every effort to demonstrate and maintain their competency through professional certification and ongoing proficiency testing. I mean, that sounds pretty good to me. And it's really, really close to how forensic anthropologists or archaeologists examine bones to determine sex, age, height, and so on. Because there is no foolproof, 100% dead cert, completely accurate formula to follow, and you just have to be really, really careful, have quite a bit of experience and follow very similar rules to what I just stated. Um, and yes, Forensic anthropologists and archaeologists do get it wrong occasionally. Mm-hmm. I also found some research papers which tested computer programs that could identify authors from handwriting samples with 97 to 99% accuracy. One study even claimed that it had, if it had enough of a sample size, it could match two pieces of handwriting 100% of the time. Now, this depends on quite a few factors, including not only the sample size, but the conditions under which the handwriting was produced, and most importantly, the subject and content of the writing. It needs to be pretty specific types of samples, but still very useful and an exciting prospect if it is fully utilised. 
So handwriting analysis in this sense is totally a thing, but it is a very specific branch of forensic science called forensic or questioned document examination. So what about the other non-forensic document examiners called graphologists that, um, that claim that they can also analyze character and personality traits based on loops, dots, crosses, spaces, slants, height, strokes, and so on. Well, <laughs> <laughs> let me tell you. I'll tell you about this. Graphology is claimed to be useful for everything from understanding health issues, morality, and past experiences to hidden talents and mental problems. However, Improperly controlled blind studies where handwriting samples contain no content that could provide any non-graphological information upon which to base a pre uh, prediction. For example, it's copied from a magazine. Graphologists do no better than chance at predicting personality traits. And even non-experts, quote, experts, are able to correctly identify gender for a writer about 70% of the time basically by guessing yeah the techniques used by these experts seem to be reducible to impressions of things like pressure exerted on the page spacing of words letters cross t's dot i slant size speed consistency of writing and now graphologists deny it the content of the writing is one of the most important factors. The content of the message, of course, should be independent of the handwriting and should be irrelevant in any assessment. Yeah. You can't be basing any kind of handwriting analysis on the content of the like what the words are saying. Basically, you, can, you should only be looking at the handwriting. It's so, about you the same might, sentence. The same sentence, exactly. Yeah. And you. You can't, you, you should be able to say the exact same things about a person when they've written, I need to go to the dry cleaners to pick up my suit. You should be able to determine the exact same personality traits and things like that from someone that's written, I would kill your family in their sleep. It, you know, you should be able to determine the same thing because the content of what they're writing shouldn't be important. It's the handwriting that you're analyzing. Mm -hmm. Very important. Very important. That's what makes it a science. So you might consider graphologists to be a little bit to be a little more than practitioners of a kind of sympathetic magic. And the notion that leaving wide spaces between letters indicates a proneness to isolation and loneliness because the wide spaces indicate someone who does not mix easily and is uncomfortable with closeness is poppycock. <laughs> One graphologist even claims that a person betrays their sadistic nature if you if you, they, they cross their T's with lines that look like whips. That's right. Oh, God. Oh. That's so dumb. It's so dumb. Since there is no theory as to how graphology might work, I have no way of explaining their process. So it shouldn't be surprising when I tell you that there is no evidence that any graphological characteristics significantly correlate with any interesting personality traits. Basically, there's no evidence whatsoever that your handwriting says anything about you at all, not even a little bit. Maybe it can tell them that you were in a rush. Yeah, or... I mean, I, get, I, I could see how maybe, like, if you looked at my writing, you could probably tell that I'm a cartoony person. It's pretty clear in how I write. But 
you wouldn't be able to tell much more than that. Just, but that's just because I choose to write cartoony. You know but what I mean? But at the same time, though, I might write a rather cartoony text on a Tuesday, but then on Wednesday, my my writing might look really formal and um completely different. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, and also that's anecdotal. You know that you're a cartoony person, and you interpret your handwriting as quite cartoony. But someone looking at it from completely not knowing you might not interpret it that way. Yeah, yeah. They'd probably be like, "Oh no, she's she's grasping at people desperately," and, and <laughs> fucking stupid. <laughs> it's it's right. Yeah. So. Listeners familiar with the techniques of cold reading will be able to understand why graphology appears to work and why so many otherwise intelligent people believe in it. So also add to this the Barnum effect, confirmation bias, communal reinforcement, the Forer effect and subjective validation, all really good subjects for future episodes, by the way. And you have a fairly complete explanation for graphology's popularity subjective validation was what you were talking about just then yeah yeah so i have a case study an example of thousands oh my mouth made a farty noise when i said thousands and thousands of why graphology is complete bullshit so take this bbc article from february 2005 A flick through last weekend's newspapers should have been an illuminating experience for anyone interested in learning more about Tony Blair. Graphologists, handwriting experts, have been invited by some of the press to analyse a sheet of paper containing doodles by the Prime Minister during a meeting at last week's World Economic Forum. Some of the results made alarming reading. According to a graphologist consulted by the Times, Mr. Blair's use of triangles represented a death wish, symbolic, she said, of the risk to his political career. Elaine Quigley, a graphologist consulted by the Daily Mirror, thought the scribbles showed the Blair flair at work without the overlay of public performance. The circling of words was, she said, a sign of the Prime Minister's quick mind and ability to turn on the spot and come up with fluent answers. Conversely, graphologist Helen Taylor, quoted in The Independent, found the badly formed circles revealed an inability to complete tasks. The only blot in the copybook came later when number 10 the doodles. The scribbles of this reckless, struggling incompetent were actually the work of fellow delegate Bill Gates, who, as founder of Microsoft, is possibly the world's most successful self-made businessman. Suck on it, graphologists. (laughs) So, graph analysis, good. Graphology, crap. Yes. Got it. Perfect. That is a great (laughs) summary. (laughs) That's awesome. <laughs> well, it's like, you know, again, as as a witch, I I love I love the concept of fruity things where where you can like uh be able to grasp the inner workings of somebody through something like that. I would love if something like that could work. But I really got to admit I love seeing uh charlatans taken down, you know, cuz it's just a load of crap. Yeah, it is. I mean, and, and right in the article, the same circles of words were interpreted in two totally different ways. So somebody said circling of the words was the a quick mind inability to turn on the spot and come up with fluent answers. And then the very next person said an inability to complete tasks. 
So it's yeah. the exact same. Con- so what? And then um, the, the overall, the press were saying that this person was incompetent. This person was reckless. This person was, um, you know, basically a bad seed. But then it came out that it was Bill Gates and everyone's kind of like, oh, my God, egg on my face. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, shall we move on to some some cases? Yeah. So. Melanie, are you going to disturb me? Am I going to be able to sleep tonight? I might disturb you. I, I hope I disturb you. I've already heard it once. I was just trying to be like, um, <laughs> I don't know, like, I don't know what the word is. Oh, shit. <laughs> but I've already heard the cases and they're pretty fucked up. So definitely trigger warning for this bit. Yes, super trigger warning. Um, first one, not so much. Second one, yeah. But yeah. Okay. So I brought two cases to the table today. Um, I've obviously, as is my want, I had like eight of them lined up. So I'm going a little bit more to crime here. Give you, give you a story. So the first one I wanted to bring up just because I love, I love like the first recorded incidents of things. I feel like that's kind of like a good way to lead you into something. So the one I have here is the first ransom note in American history. This is the case of Charlie Ross. On July 1st, 1874, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, two little boys were kidnapped in front of their mansion. The first and most notable crime of this kind in America until the Lindbergh baby. The boys were Charles Ross, a four-year-old, and Walter Ross, who was was about five or six years old. They had been given candy and lured into a carriage with the promise of firecrackers. The older boy, Walter, was said to have been given 25 cents to go into a shop and buy the fireworks, but when he returned to the carriage, they found it and his little brother long gone. Walter was eventually found and returned to his parents. Little Charlie, unfortunately, never was. The father, Christian Ross, was thought to be a wealthy man, but was actually in tremendous debt unbeknownst to the kidnappers. Three days after Charlie was stolen, a ransom note appeared. The notes Christian Ross received were mailed from post offices in the area. They contained many misspellings. The first part read, you will have to pay us before you get him from us, and pay us a big cent, too. If you put the cops hunting for him, you is only defeating your own end. A second note read, this is the lever that moved the rock that hides him from you. Twenty thousand dollars, not one dollar less. Impossible, impossible. You cannot get him without it. More than 20 notes were received over the next few months. Now, $20,000 is a large amount of money to anyone who isn't a CEO, but especially in those days, and especially to a man up to his eyeballs in debt, there was just no way to pay it. There are conflicting stories as to why the ransom was never paid. Some people say that the people of Philadelphia were so moved that they raised the ransom, but every time the money was to be delivered, the culprits never came to pick it up. Some say that Christian, the dad, refused to pay the ransom for fear that it would encourage more people to ransom the children of affluent families. Eventually, the ransom notes stopped coming. About five months after the kidnapping, two burglars were shot in an attempted robbery in Brooklyn. Bill Mosher was killed. The second robber, Joe Douglas, was fatally wounded. Before he died, he said that he and Mosher had kidnapped Charlie Ross. The witnesses, though, disagreed on what the dying man said after that. Either he said Charlie had been killed or that Charlie was still alive. You know, one of the two. Yeah. Real (laughs) real helpful there, guys. Cheers. I'm glad somebody was paying attention. (laughs) Top notch. Either way, though, hope was sparked in the Ross house. 
walter the older brother was brought to identify the bodies of mosher and douglas he confirmed them as his kidnappers specifically recalling that mosher had a malformed nose william westervelt was the only arrest made in connection to the case westervelt was a friend of the deceased villains he had not had part of the crime but he said that at the time of mosher's death he believed charlie ross to be alive now in true anastasia fashion there were many attempts to find charlie and many people auditioned for the role of the long lost son the most successful claimant was gustav blair who in 1934 at age 69 lived in phoenix arizona he petitioned a court to recognize him as the real charlie ross he claimed he was abducted as a child and eventually adopted by a man who told him that he was charlie ross walter ross would not even consider blair's claim he said we've long ago given up hope that charles would ever be found alive but he didn't contest it in court and the judge ruled that blair was charles brewster ross in 1939 the Ross family refused to recognize him as Charlie. Blair continued his claims until his death in 1943, and at one point to sell his and he tried at one point to sell his life story to a movie studio without success. So that is the first official case with a ransom note in it on American soil. It surprises me they've not ba gone back and done DNA analysis to on on living um, descendants this was like in the 1940s so you know at the time of his death no but uh, now yeah you know like descendants of the family would still you know of the the missing child so what's the family name again the ross family yeah they'll still be descendants of the ross family they their dna can be compared against the body the corpse of <laughs> the yeah. guy that claimed to be little charlie ross uh, that's that how happened. we determined whether or not the guy under the car park was um the king oh my <laughs> god nice <laughs> it's completely gone from my brain oh no you want to do a quick google we can edit out the the uh concern the king in the car park the king in the car park. <laughs> Richard the Third. <laughs> I can't believe. Want to try that one again? We're just completely blank. But yeah, that's how they determined um, that the body that they found under the car park in Leicester was, in fact, Richard the Third. Um, yeah. Was by uh, testing DNA against living uh, descendants. descendants. Nice. Yeah. Can be done. It absolutely can be done. I just don't. I, I think not enough. Not many people know that case. So maybe we can just like throw it at somebody who may have that kind of influence. Hey, can you just, just check? Well, just I mean, the family could ask science? for it. Yeah. So the family must really not believe this guy for them not to want to have a test done. Yeah, they they probably just don't even don't even want because because. If it proves that he's not, then that child is still lost, and we really genuinely don't know what happened to him. Um, and I think that might be a little bit more traumatizing than going, it might be this guy, but uh, uh, would, we'd rather not know. I don't mm. know. Well, maybe there are no descendants, and I'm mistaken. There may be. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, no idea. All right. And so the investigative journalists out there. <laughs> give us some answers we want to know Sorry. the people want to know all right so 
this next case I have for you is dark. It just, it, it is. Um, so that's, that's my little heads up for that. Um, and let us continue. This is the case of Marion Parker. This one is a senselessly violent and awful one, but I felt compelled to tell it, so I will. Perry Marion Parker was a prominent banker in Los Angeles in the 1920s. He had two beautiful twin girls named Marion and Marjorie. On December 15, 1927, a well-dressed and well-spoken young man came to their middle school. They were 12 years old at the time. He introduced himself as Mr. Cooper and told the school registrar that he needed to pick up the Parker girl, as her father was in a terrible car crash and requested his daughter right away. When the registrar asked, which girl? The man seemed confused for a moment before replying, Marion. The girl was brought to him and the school's officials released her to his care, watching as he told the girl, don't cry, little girl, I'll take you to your daddy. They watched her climb into the passenger seat of his coupe and drive off. When Marjorie returned home from school without her sister, her parents were obviously more than a little concerned. They didn't have long to wait, however, for a telegram arrived shortly thereafter saying, do positively nothing till you receive a special delivery letter, Marion Parker. A second telegram arrived right after that saying, Marion secure, use good judgment, interference with my plans, dangerous, Marion Parker, George Fox. Perry, the father, contacted the police. Every single officer was called to try and find the girl. As hours wore on, the family grew more and more nervous. The next day, a ransom note arrived demanding $15,000 in gold certificates for the safe return of Marion. So I have the actual note here, and it can be a little hard to read. And, and, and this goes into that graphology or graph analysis that you're kind of talking about. This note itself uses about three different kinds of writing. Sometimes it's all capitals. Sometimes it's in cursive. Sometimes it's in just chicken scratch. It's, it's a lot to sort of deal with with this letter um it goes p.m parker use good judgment you are the loser do this secure 75 20 gold certificates u.s currency fifteen hundred dollars at once keep them on your person go about your daily business as usual leave out police and detectives make no public notice keep this affair private make no search fulfilling these terms with the transfer of the currency will secure the return of the girl Failure to comply with these requests means no one will ever see the girl again, except the angels in heaven. The affair must end one way or the other within three days, 72 hours. You will receive further notice, but the terms remain the same. Fate. If you want aid against me, ask God, not man. Two more notes arrived in short order, all signed ominously with titles such as Fate, Death, The Fox. One letter included a P.S. written in Marion's handwriting. Daddy, please do what this man tells you, or he'll kill me if you don't. Your loving daughter, Marion. The fox sent instructions for a drop-off place, but poor Mr. Perry didn't know the police were following him in order to catch the fox. The villain saw the police and fled. The kidnapper sent letter after letter, assuring Perry that his daughter was alive, for now. He claimed Marion saw him and the police and wondered why her daddy hadn't helped her. He warned a phone call would come and to keep the police far away from the situation. The call came on December 17th, two days after her kidnapping. Perry was instructed to bring the money to West 5th Street in South Manhattan Place in Los Angeles. Perry was there at 8 p.m. with all the money requested. A Chrysler Coupe pulled up slowly. The driver covered his face with a bandana, flashed a gun, and made Perry acknowledge it. The worried father asked if Marion was all right. He could see her slumping form in the passenger seat. She's sleeping, the kidnapper told him. 
The distressed father handed over the money, and in a flash the kidnapper tossed the 12-year-old girl's body out of the car and drove off. Perry, still thinking his daughter was asleep, ran to her body and cradled it only to find that the limbs were all severed, her eyes sewn open. She was disemboweled and her body stuffed with rags. She had been dead for 12 hours. Over the course of a few days, her limbs and organs were found wrapped in newspaper in Ellisian Park. At 620 Manhattan Street, a woman noticed a suitcase on her front lawn. It contained the blood-soaked papers and a spool of thread, the same thread used on Marion's eyes. A nationwide manhunt was initiated to find the killer. Over 20,000 cops and volunteers. When the details of the gruesome murder were leaked to the press, the people of Los Angeles came together to raise a $100,000 reward for the killer's capture, dead or alive. During the investigation, police grew suspicious of Perry Parker's former employee, a young man named William Edward Hickman. William was a messenger boy at First National Bank who was convicted of forging stolen checks in June of 1927. He served time for the crimes, partially due to Perry's testimony. Tons of evidence led to all the places that he had been. It was getting painfully clear this guy was definitely the murderer. But he was in the wind and could not be found. A gas station attendant in Oregon thought he recognized William driving a green Hudson sedan. Then in Seattle, a $20 ransom note was used to purchase cold weather clothing. The police up north were on high alert. On December 22, 1927, two Oregon police officers were enjoying a smoke break in Echo, Oregon, when an unmistakable green Hudson rambled by. The officers began their pursuit. They pointed a pistol at the driver who half-heartedly gave chase, but eventually pulled over. William didn't struggle when they arrested him. He only shrugged his shoulders and stated, well, I guess it's all over. When Perry Parker learned of the arrest, he told reporters, I feel a sense of deep and sincere thankfulness that this man has been captured and that mothers no longer, fear, no longer need fear that he may carry off their children. William admitted to the kidnapping right away. He blamed the murder on a friend named Andrew Kramer. Andrew, however, had an alibi. He was in prison at the time. Mm. California now had only just accepted guilty by reason of insanity as an actual thing. So William was all over that. He began acting as insanely as he could, claiming a supernatural entity called Providence urged him to kill the girl. He even wrote letters to other prisoners on how to act crazy in order to be, in order to be as convincing as possible. It was almost working until the state called their own professionals to evaluate him. And on February 9th, 1928, William Hickman was found guilty of first-degree murder. The jury deliberated for only 36 minutes. William told the press, The die is cast and the state wins by a neck. I don't think I have much to live for and I don't know yet why I killed that Parker girl, but I did it. And I'll take my punishment. Before guards marched William to the gallows, he nibbled on a chicken dinner and listened to records on an old Victrola. He read letters from his mom and cried once. He asked a guard to hear his final confession. And here's where we get into some pretty gruesome details. And uh, I don't know if you've changed your mind since then, but do you want to hear them? No. Yeah, the first time she offered, I declined. And I feel like I'm going to decline this time also. Okay. I, I talked about how I feel like sometimes when we go into the gruesome details, we kind of glamorize it a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. But suffice to say that they did find, and and his confession concluded, she was strangled before she was mutilated. Okay, that's that was her cause of death, was strangulation. Mm-hmm. William insisted revenge was not the motive. He killed her because he, quote, 
got tired of finding her in the room where I kept her while I was trying to get the ransom. It got so that the sight of her drove me into a frenzy, and I began figuring out that I was a fool to be annoyed. I was a scoffer at God, I guess. But on October 29, 1928, William walked up to the 13 squeaky steps and fainted as the executioner placed a black hood over his head. The rope was slack, too slack to break William's neck. They released the trap door, and William strangled for 14 minutes before the doctor pronounced him dead, seven times longer than it took him to strangle Marion. Heavy. Yeah, no, not not a chipper one, but an impressive one, I guess is the word. I've yeah. been looking for. It's audacious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's just uh, like like we talked about in our previous recording of this. Um, it's it's hard as somebody who loves horror stories and who loves you know the grotesque and the violent and the insane to actually start telling the story to other people in a way that isn't, that isn't glamorizing it, you know, because mm. as, again, as a horror fan, that's like where my head, if I were, if I were watching a movie about that, I'd be like, fuck yeah, this is insane. But because it's a real story, it's just like, you, these are real people and it's, it's fucking awful. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to find that balance. And sometimes you can accidentally cross the line. I think I talked a little bit about how um, there's a theory in terms of uh, in gender studies about uh, females having a a stronger than males uh, fixation of more about morbid things. And it has to do with the maternal instinct. So it's, it's linked towards um, the fact that the females have certain kinds of chemicals that, in exaggerate maternal instincts therefore also become curious about morbid things because it's almost like uh uh things that i won't let happen to my offspring yeah yeah, it's like collating data (laughs) i'm going to i'm going to learn about all the awful things that people are doing so i can know that this won't happen i'll know the signs so it won't happen to my family or the people that I'm, I need to protect. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then we said we don't want to sound like ses- sexist, but it is pretty consistent. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. That females do have like an obsession with true crime and morbid things. I meant to look into that and see if there are any like true crime pro- podcasts by guys. Yeah. I meant to look into that and I just, cause that's all, I mean, when you think true crime podcast, you think female host, you know, female storytellers there. Um, yeah. I don't want it to be true. <laughs> but Apparently, I think it's pretty, pretty, uh, I, I'm willing to accept that it is that women are just are we, more interested in it. We are leaning into the confirmation bias, but I believe that there are theories around the link between material, Internal instinct and morbid fixation and also which i believe i brought up last time the wanton destruction of cute things mm-hmm. so females have this thing called like the cute urge or something like that where basically you want to crush and eat something that you just find so fucking cute you just want to eat it inside you absorb and crush but yeah. you don't and apparently that's li- li- that's also linked to our maternal instincts. <laughs> it is called cute aggression. Cute aggression. Actually. That's it. Yeah. 
It's a new study that suggests it tempers an overwhelming response in the brain in the delightful presence of chubby babies, fluffy puppies, or other adorable little things. Mm. Yeah, it's that desire to squeeze, pinch, or bite just really cute fucking things. Yes. And and I think, yeah, it's it's just like, I know that in my case, when I feel that urge to just squeeze something, it's just, I want to shove it into my body. I want to merge and be one. I want to fuse with this cute thing so it's never yeah. outside of my hands. <laughs> it's almost like it shouldn't be allowed to be so cute. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually find myself swearing at things that are yeah. really cute. God fucking damn it. Stop it. <laughs> I'm, I'm a sucker for kittens. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm a sucker for kittens and uh, ducklings. Those oh, are my... yeah, ducklings. Oh, my God, ducklings. Ducklings will do me in every time. I cry when I see ducklings. <laughs> mm-hmm. I just, like, recently saw a bunch of ducklings and tears were pouring down my face. <laughs> They're so innocent and adorable. Lambs are up there as well. I think lambs yeah. are cute. Yeah. Anyway. Baby fuzzy, <laughs> fluffy things in general. Giant eyes. It's it's built into us. The big eyes, small head. <laughs> Except babies don't do it for me. Babies have the exact opposite effect on me. I'm repulsed by the look of babies. Yeah, which... it's in those first like three months where it's just kind of like, oh. No, but all, once, all once, babies. Once they grow some hair and no. and they're less wrinkly, now it's not done do it for you. No. Uh. You know those photographers, those photography where they have like babies in flower pots and things like that. Mm-hmm. No, not cute. Kind of creepy. Fair enough. Fair enough. Why do you want to dress your child up like a plant pot? Because Cute it's adorable. Because they're growing and it's they're little seeds, the little human seeds. All they do is cry and shit and eat. And cry, eat. shit, and eat. Bite. <laughs> And demand things. And demand things with, with their cries. So, yeah. Anyway, we tried to lighten the mood at the end so that it, we weren't <laughs> ending on a downer. Kittens! <laughs> Kittens! Um, yeah, real quick, before we end this thing, I did want to throw my yokai out again. Okay. So, I found a semi-applicable yokai. I will bring a yokai any opportunity I can. So, this is me doing that. There's a yokai for this. It's Ame Ona. Translation, rain woman. Her habitat, dark streets and alleys, formerly clouds and holy mountains. Her diet is unknown, though it is possibly rain and or children. Ame Ona are a class of yokai that appear on rainy days and nights. They summon rain wherever they go and are blamed for kidnapping and spiriting away children. They appear as depraved, haggish women soaked with rainwater. They lick the rain off their hands and arms like wild animals. Amaona are related to minor rain deities. Unlike the gods, however, Amaona are not benevolent. Though the rains they bring might save a village in drought or bring fortune to farmers, they have a more sinister purpose. Under the cover of rain, Amaona wander the villages looking for newborn girls. If they should find a child born that night, they snatch it and carry it off into the darkness, spiriting it away to another world. And some so there are some stories that say that uh, mothers who have their babies snatched by the Ameona become Ameonas themselves out of grief and despair, wandering in the rain and snatching babies. Grim. Yeah. She's pretty, though. She's so cute and creepy. 
I love yokai so much. Are you gonna pop her up on Insta? Shit, yeah, well, she's great. Uh, seriously, guys, yokai are the coolest things. Out of like all of the mythologies and and creature compendiums, uh, yokai are just the freaking coolest. Because they contain everything from just like wild, bizarre creatures covered in eyeballs that haunt uh, abandoned temples to like urban legend stories and and ghosts and demons and they're just rad (laughs) my personal favorite is a popular favorite with people but there's a reason why it's a popular favorite is the yokai of lost umbrellas i can't not with him he is so cute it is an umbrella with a foot and an eyeball and he is the yokai of umbrellas that have been left places what is the uh umibusa no what is his name? He hops around on his little foot. Yeah, Casa Obake. That's his name. Uh, what's great about him is, yeah, he's the spirit of lost and discarded umbrellas. Because um, there's a type of yokai pantheon that are just discarded things. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is there to describe that feeling of something wet and or cold up against your cheek. And the thing is that he's licking your cheek and then disappears from view. And you're kind of going, what the f- fuck just touched my face adorably creepy awesome is there one that's for cutlery that's stuck in a drawer cutlery stuck in a drawer that that stops a drawer from being able to open probably (laughs) i'm sure either i dreamt that or there is something from something else that i'm i'm sort of remembering in an echo in my brain (laughs) <laughs> where there's like a spirit of the, that action where you try to open a drawer and there's something stuck stopping the drawer from opening. <laughs> Otaisho, which is a tiny little soldier pieced together out of chipped teacups, cracked, cracked dishes, and other miscellaneous utensils. Um, it has the face of a sake bottle and its armor is made out of porcelain ware. He's cute too. <laughs> nah, they're fun. We'll definitely do a whole <laughs> yokai episode one day. Oh, you you will it will be like a five hour long episode because you won't be able to stop me. Okay. It'll, it's, it's I won't a bring it. I just literally won't bring anything to that. When when Yokai comes out, I'll take that week off. <laughs> I'm like, let me tell you a million things. <laughs> and I will react to those things for an hour and a half. They're so good. They're so good. Okay, sorry. And I'm I'm done. <laughs> it's okay, Melanie. So if Don't you like that, yeah, right. <laughs> I am passionate. Ah, and Yokai Day is August. It comes up in August, and you guys will fucking know because there will be yokais all over the internet. Because I'm gonna make it. It's my own official, unofficial holiday. Um. So if you liked that, if you liked the more true crime method we sort of went with this time, if you kind of want us to go back to our roots and just tell you point blank facts. Um, if you have any great subjects, uh, or even not great subjects, lame subjects, if you have any subjects you want us to talk about, please hit us up on our Instagram, our Facebook, our Twitter, Zombie Fishbowl or Zombie Fishbowl Podcast. Send them to our email, zombiefishbowlpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to receive them, hear them. We want to hear from you. We want your input. We want to help make this as enjoyable experience as it can possibly be. Yeah. Right. Well, I have a question for you, Melanie. No. We picked a random topic. last time are we going to do that topic that we picked last time we recorded or are we going to pick a new random topic yes we are yeah i like that topic 
I'm excited okay. about it. So let's pretend that we're pulling, we're picking a random topic now. Random topic picker, random topic picker, you're a random topic picker, and you're gonna pick a topic that we already picked. <laughs> oh, surprise, surprise! <laughs> it's a listener request. We kind of got a little bit of a. It wasn't actually directly requested, but he asked if we would circle around this subject but his name's Jill, Jill, Jim Alderhey I think off the top of my head author Arthur he's an author yeah author um <laughs> we will shout you out when we uh put the episode up yeah. and he asked about folk stories about the devil <laughs> which is a really fun topic especially at the moment when I'm actually reading quite a lot of folk literature yeah so it's all up in my brain at the moment. <laughs> and we decided what we're going to do is we're going to split it up into continents. So I'm going to do American tales of folk tales of the devil in proper devil went down to Georgia style. And uh, I'm going to do your British. Uh, what voice am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> what? What voice is that? I'm going to do British folk tales. And I'm going to try to do tales from England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, and the Republic of Ireland for, you know, some kind of um, what's equal representation. But I don't know how I'm going to do that and keep it succinct, but we'll see. I might do short folk stories about all the places. Or I might pick two really, really good ones and yeah. put a pin in the others, but we'll see. It's just that I really, really want to do one that's local to me. I'm like, I really know about this particular story, but it's really, really short. Ah, got it. Yeah. So it won't fill half of my segment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's one that I had to research when I did my last internship. Nice. So, yeah. I really want to include that one because it's my yeah. my local yeah. devil story. Oh, I'm excited. This is going to be really good. I'm really excited about it. I love folk stories. Love folk tales. Yes. Folk tales are life. <laughs> All right. So shall we leave off with a quote? Yes. And I'm not going to give you a quote this week because there's no real way of summarizing kidnappings and ransom notes in some kind of inspirational or even folk funny um quirky quote not even spock has anything to say about kidnappings and ransom notes so instead i just opened a random book and opened it to a random page and picked a random fact and here it is in japan foxes are sacred to the shinto religion and fox possession is a recognized clinical condition symptoms include a craving for rice and an inability to make eye contact yeah damn shifty foxes and their rice stealing <laughs> that is from the book of animal ignorance which is a book in the qi series of fact books so yes very very good um, <laughs> and i said last time isn't it funny how I had a fact about foxes when the baddie in the last story referred to himself as a fox? The fox. 
Yeah, you, you didn't. This was not actually recorded, but in there, in his home, they found a bunch of rice. Oh, oh that makes sense. <laughs> Notoriously, really bad eye contact as well. <laughs> Some might say he was unable to do it. <laughs> just, just incapable. <laughs> Impossible. I love you, and I can't wait to do folk tales about the devil. I'm stoked about it. Yeah, it's coming up really soon. Yeah, I'll see you in like two days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, All right. Well, thank you for listening to a re-record. Yeah, our first re-record. It's notorious that almost every podcast has this issue at least once where they record an episode. There's issues and they have to re-record it. So I now I feel like we've we've come across this hurdle, and uh, yeah, hopefully yeah. it never happens again. I guess it had to happen within the first year and it's literally, you know, two episodes away from the one year episode. So we'll get planning on that. And if you have anything to add about what you think we should do for our first birthday, give us a shout. Yeah. Hit us up. And until then, my darlings, we'll see you next time. And don't forget, don't panic. (laughs) Please try, try not to panic. I know there's a lot of things to panic about, but just try. Freaking out, man. Okay, bye.